This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. Today's show is brought to you by Mac Weldon. I'm looking at a script, but I do not need to look at the script because I know that Mac Weldon makes awesome hoodies, sweatshirt, underwear, and socks. Jacob Weisberg, you are kind of a fashion authority. What do you think of these? Uh, nice. Those are classy. They're great. They're classy. Jacob Weisberg says so. He knows a little bit about fashion. They are also super comfortable. They are made from naturally antimicrobial fabric, which means they do not smell bad. They smell good. You can wear them wherever you want. You can wear them to podcast if you want. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. It's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. You will like this product. I buy them with my own money. That is my best possible endorsement. If for some reason you don't like this product, you are weird, but it doesn't matter. You can hang on to it. Mac Weldon will send your money back. No questions asked. 20% off is good for you and me. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. I'm sitting here with an actual podcasting authority, Jacob Weisberg. Please critique my advertising pitch. Jesus, Peter, you're a pro. I'm, I'm taking notes. I, I, I hope someday to be as smooth as you are reading. You, you are pretty doing slick, the host so grades. I, I will. I will accept your praise. Did you realize you were going to be a, a podcasting authority when you grew up? You know, I did not know that at this age I would be reading uh, ads for MeUndies. Yeah, um, are you a MeUndies um, guy? But uh, I'm, I've embraced it. I've embraced the MeUndies, and I've embraced the uh, the ad model. It's kind of I have to say as a listener. I don't usually skip the podcast ads. It's kind of fun to hear how different people do them. You know, it's and they're kind of we're so we're at the stage of the industry. I mean, not to jump too far in right away, but I think we're at the stage in podcasting where everybody who loves podcasting is rooting for everybody who's supporting podcasting. Yes. So there's there's this curious but fairly intense goodwill towards the sponsors. Yeah, the standard analogy, right, is we're blogging in 2004 or 2005 where there's sort of a small crowd of people who are making it, a slightly larger crowd of people listening to it. It seems very exciting. No one's jaded yet. Um, Jacob, why don't you introduce yourself to the, the crowd who doesn't know you as a podcasting authority? I'm Jacob Weisberg. I'm chairman of the Slate Group, and Slate Group's two main things are Slate Magazine and a podcasting startup called Panoply, which we launched a bit over a year ago, which is trying to do a lot of things in the podcast business, including produce shows, develop some strong back-end technology for hosting and distribution and, and tracking, and also sell advertising. You're working with my colleague Ezra Klein, a couple podcasts for him from the Vox.com folks. Um, and you've got a cool new podcast with uh, Malcolm Gladwell. We can talk about all of that. Um, you also have your own podcast called Trumpcast. Did I get it right? Exactly. I launched it uh, earlier this year, basically out of uh, concern and outrage about what was happening in politics. At Cons- my, yeah. And probably also a thought that, you know, it turns out that people like to talk about Trump, listen to people talking about Trump, read about Trump. I assume there was some of that motivation as well. Yeah, one of the lessons I've learned in journalism, my background is as a political journalist. I was Slate's chief political reporter. I wrote for The New Republic and Newsweek and New York Magazine, a lot of other magazines. You never go too far wrong by writing about topic A, yeah. covering topic A. People want to hear about it. And Trump is topic A in a way. No one in politics in my lifetime has ever been topic A. And it was clear he was going to stay that way. But it was also you know, the, the overall sense of, of neutrality and capitulation by a lot of the media toward the Trump phenomenon really had me incensed. And I wanted to do something that wasn't a diatribe, because that's not interesting, but I wanted to explore the phenomenon, but at the same time, do what you can do in podcasting or in Slate Magazine and not start from the standpoint of, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, I think this guy's a menace and a danger to democracy, and I want that to be a premise of the show. How is Trumpcast performing? It's done really well. Um, it's in some ways surprising me because I'm just learning to do podcasts. You know, I, I've been a guest on podcasts, yeah. but I've never hosted anything. And uh, 
people listen. I mean, and, and I think you know this as someone who, who does a show. Part of what's so satisfying about it and part of the reason everybody at Slate who doesn't already have a podcast wants a podcast is this relationship you have with the audience, yeah. which is really unlike anything I've encountered. Really intimate because you're in someone's head. I think that's part of it, right? They're listening through earbuds. And also, I mean, I've, I've thought about this a, a lot. I think it's partly because it's, it's totally on-demand media. Yep. Nobody happens to be listening to your podcast. And so the listeners are people who really want to listen to you. And if they don't want to listen to you, they're not listening to you anymore. So yeah, really, that's, that's yeah. my big unifying theory of, of media, right? Is, yeah. It's not really a big theory. But, but I think the bar for audio and video is so much higher yeah. because it's all on demand and you will not listen to more than a minute of a podcast you're not interested in. You yeah. won't watch more than 30 seconds of video. It's not fungible in the way that text is. Stuff can sort of flow through you in the Facebook feed and maybe you click on a link, maybe you don't. Yeah. Since we are talking about Trump, can't go wrong talking about Trump, we're, we're recording this in early June, probably listen to it a little later. In terms of the narrative right now, a week ago, Donald Trump was this super savvy street fighter who was going to run circles around Hillary Clinton, who didn't know how to deal with such a radical new political force. Literally less than a week later, the Trump campaign has suddenly unraveled. He suddenly can't handle questions from the press. Hillary Clinton gave one aggressive speech. Everyone thinks, oh, this is the, the narrative now as of this moment seems to be that, oh, maybe this is the end, beginning of end of Trump. Do, does that sound right to you? Well, th- that's the most over-proclaimed uh, outcome. And since September, people have been saying oh, Trump's finally gone too far. Right, and, and, yeah, but yeah. they did stop saying it after a while. Because they said, well, we, they, they sort of were, like, like you said, they were sort of resigned for a while. Like, oh, he actually, he's Godzilla. He's impervious to, yeah. to whatever we're shooting at him. Yeah, I mean, that said, I think he has gone too far. And I think these um, comments about the judge in San Diego really crossed some lines that he actually hadn't crossed before. It wasn't that he hasn't said something that, bigoted about Mexicans. He said things that are more bigoted about Mexicans. But I think it was had to do partly with questioning this guy's Americanness. You know, when you when you challenge the idea that somebody who is a second generation immigrant is American, I think you're really you're you're kind of hitting America where it lives. Let me play devil's advocate because one, how do you assess that? And two, like you said, people have been saying that about Trump for really a year now, a year, you know, a little more than a year, a little less than a year ago, he's saying John McCain, American war hero, was not a war hero because he'd been shot down. He didn't. Everyone said, oh, that is the end of him. You cannot go after John right. McCain, right? You, you, and maybe, you mean John McCain endorsed him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, why do we think that him impugning a judge that no one's ever heard of, and by the way, he's a member of an ethnic group that was already never going to vote for Trump, is going gonna, is gonna to cause him problems in a way that anything else he said is going to cause him problems? Well, empirically, I think you're just seeing Republicans running, really running away from him for the first time. I mean, there were a lot of Republican leaders, most of them, who had decided to hold their nose in support of right. Paul Ryan and, and a lot of others. And then Paul Ryan held his nose and he, said, this is awful and racist, and I'm still going to support him. Well, but if you saw what he said this week, you know, he said this is the definition of a racist comment. Yeah. I mean, he didn't withdraw his endorsement. And then he said, I'm going to continue to endorse him. Yeah, but let's watch this space. I mean, and, and you know, here you're getting into, uh, I'm getting into psychology, but... I actually have an instinct that at some level Trump is sabotaging himself, doesn't want to be president, doesn't know how to be president. And, you know, he hasn't put together a campaign. I mean, he's got a few people who are feuding. He has, he's saying we don't need to raise that much money. We don't need a conventional staff. We don't need staff in these different states. We're going to run in California, which is a majority Latino population. I mean, he's you saying You think that's stuff. all shorthand for I never expected to be still running for president in the summer of 2016. I think he's he, he's looking for an, a parachute, and uh, but I think he needs someone to blame because of his 
narcissism, he can't he can't lose. Yeah. He has to be cheated. So this is why you constantly hear this language from him of, you know, it's the system is rigged. I'm being ripped off. Whether he's going to end up blaming the Republican National Committee or he's going to end up blaming Paul Ryan or he's going to blame Hillary Clinton for stealing the election in some way, the outcome will not be him saying, I lost fair and square. Yeah, I think that was my theory in the primaries. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the conventional pundits said the same thing. Like, well, he, you know, once he gets knocked around in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina or pick the state, then he's going to sort of find a way to like pull back and, and say what you said, blame some other force because yeah. um, he, had, he had no intention. Assuming that he still runs and doesn't bail out and assuming that Hillary Clinton beats him in the general election, what will the thing you have learned during this election cycle be? As a pundit, as an American, well, it's very, it's very disenchanting. About, I, I would have to say honestly that I no longer think I am living this the country that I thought I was living in a year ago. This time, I didn't think that a country that elected Barack Obama twice, that in that country, so many people would vote for someone who has been that openly bigoted, nationalistic, xenophobic everything else. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think it's going to take a long time to recover this. I think from this, I think it's going to be a lot of self-examination. And I think it's, America looks like a very different place, even if Trump loses, but gets 45% of the vote. And so you said this is it, it's xenophobia, it's bigotry. I mean, do you think that is the core of his appeal? There's different diagnoses of why he is popular. Some is it's straight up racism. Some people say uh, he's, he's he's helping the the whites that have been you know passed over by technology and the economy. Um, my theory is people like people who are on TV. Uh-huh. They like a TV character. Well, that's clearly the source of his celebrity. And you know, I had P- Peter Sagal on on my show. He's really good, but he said, you know, well. While we were watching Breaking Bad, America was watching The Apprentice. Right. And he was famous and had a following that I think many of us in the elite, pardon the expression, didn't fully recognize or appreciate. And you were alluding to this, right? There is one of the dialogues going on about Trump is the media and the elite media saying, how did we miss this? What did, what did we get wrong here? Yeah. But I think in terms of his appeal, it's, it's a classic kind of demagoguery. It's a classic kind of strongman politics where he's, he's going to people who are suffering from an economic transition, from a poor economic recovery, and saying, you're hurting, and these people are to blame. And it's the Chinese, and it's the Mexicans, and it's the Muslims. And he's giving people a, a, a simple answer that's wrong, but it's, it's how demagogues often rise to power. In history, we've seen strains of that in America, but generally, in my mind, again, this is the sort of thing like, oh, you can see why the Russians would like Putin, who does a version of that. You would see this in other countries, and, and we, again, in my mind, you'd say, oh, I, I, this isn't America. I think that's what you were suggesting Yeah, I, I think there is even... We're closer to those countries than we imagine. Even with very right-wing Republicans, there hasn't been a question about the premises of democratic politics, the, the separation of powers, the independence of the judiciary, the free press. And I think Trump is an authoritarian in a way that we just have not seen, at least on the part of anyone who's gotten anywhere near that far in major party politics. And it does look a lot more like European nationalist xenophobic parties than it does anything I'm familiar with from covering American politics. That's present tense, hopefully not future tense. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about, about history, digital history. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was to talk about Slate.com and, and sort of the really interesting trajectory that, maybe it's a, maybe, I don't know if trajectory is the right word, it's bounced around a bunch of different times. You got there when? 
uh, just after we started in 1996, 20 years ago. We're having, Slate's having a 20th anniversary this year. I am, was one of your first readers. Thank you. We appreciate um, it. You, you, you subscribed and we had subscriptions I had the Slate, I had the golf umbrella yeah. sitting in my really filthy office at Forbes. Or I wish I still had one of those. People loved those umbrellas. They were great. So for people who weren't online in 1996 or reading Slate in 1996. Or born. Or born. The, the initial incarnation was this was Bill Gates and Microsoft's online magazine run by Michael Kinsley, who was then famous as the New Republic guy. Yeah, I had worked for Mike Kinsley at the New Republic. He's my mentor in journalism. He's, he's my dear friend. And, and he'd had this idea, and I was in on a lot of the early thinking, that this internet thing might be interesting in terms of publishing a magazine. But when we started it, we thought it was like the kind of weekly magazine we'd worked on, like the New Republic or the Economist. It was the New Music. Republic Online. Yeah, and we, we, you know, we, we came out at the beginning. We published it once a week, and we had the first issue had page numbers, yep. and we thought the first many issues had page numbers, and we thought people would print it out and read it. But we thought we'd solve the problem that always bedeviled us at the New Republic of lead time, which is we'd finish writing these great articles, and it, people wouldn't be reading them for another week. And in politics, uh, even then, that was that was a long time. Um, but we quickly started to evolve around what was possible because once you're creating a digital magazine, you realize that you have to respond very quickly to, to different kinds of events and to news because people who are online are coming to see what you have to say about them. And, and you can say anything you want, but you can't say nothing. Right. I mean, by today's standard of Internet publishing, it was still very creaky and slow, right? You had a, an aggregation thing that came out once a day, today's papers, where you literally went through – it was in the Times and the Journal, and it was super smart, too. But it wasn't like you weren't doing hot takes on whatever just happened an hour ago. It wasn't, it wasn't political-type reporting. It was, it was still magazines, length and style essays. We were playing with it even from the beginning. So I covered the, the end of the 96 campaign for Slate. In fact, there were the, the Jake Tapper and I were the first. He was at Salon, and we were the two Jakes. We were the first two Internet reporters who were actually traveling with the campaign and the you know, great hilarious moments where we'd be trying to explain to people working for Bob Dole, what the internet was and how we were actually doing journalism on it. And we would, I would take two hours. So I would cover the day's events, whatever it was. And as an exercise, I would say, you have two hours to write your piece and it'll be published. And the miraculous thing in 1996 was all the newspaper reporters who are traveling didn't have a filing deadline until after that. So they would read my thing and presumably Jake's as well on Salon before they wrote theirs. So it gave you this great chance to influence what all the other coverage was because you really were the first written take on anything that happened. But God, two hours now would seem like luxury. Right. The idea that you were going to sit down and spend two hours composing your, your thoughts. I mean, now you would, you would have two Facebook minutes. Live and then and just you talk. Make, yeah, exactly. And, and that was one of the things that I really appreciate. Like I, I grew up, I loved magazines. I was reading them from afar in Minneapolis, reading the New Republican Harper's. And the notion that I could get that kind of thought but delivered to me routinely over the internet on a daily basis was, was bananas. And, you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they would publish an edition a day and they would put it online the next morning and sort of that was that. But now the notion of having really smart, interesting journalism delivered at a very fast pace is now standard. How have you, th and you've been, you're still at Slate, you're not, you're not editing it day to day, um, but how do you sort of think a magazine like Slate or an online publication like Slate needs to adapt to today's environment? Well, yeah, flash forward, Slate has a different owner. We're part yep. of what's now called the Graham Holdings Company instead of Microsoft, where we started and instead of... In between... It was the Washington, the Washington Post, Post company, right. and then the Washington Post company sold the Washington Post and changed its name to the Graham Holdings Company. Yep. So we're still... I still work for Don Graham, yep. who, who ran the, the Washington Post family, the Graham family media business for many years. But yeah, there's... Um, 
you know, with back then you would publish 30 articles a week. Now Slade probably publishes 80 a day. And those are real, I mean, that's modest compared to what sure. a lot of people try to do. And our pieces are all edited and they're, they're thought out. And, you know, written by a human. They're written by humans. There's not, there's, there's no aggregation. Paid. We're totally uninterested in the commodity news space. We realize that we have to add value, partly because other everyone else has moved up the value chain. You know, the New York Times doesn't want to be in the commodity news business either. I mean, they're, they're now, you never used to see if the first person and anything in kind of traditional journalism. Yeah. I mean, there was this formal diction of how you did things. Though that said, like the time, one of the things the Times is doing now is a very sort of BuzzFeed style aggregation, like a telling a story via tweets and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But it's the kind of thing the Times would never do, in part because lots of other people are doing it. Yeah, I think the Times has has really evolved and changed, and no longer seems like an elephant trying to dance. You know, it doesn't. The Times doesn't feel stodgy to me anymore. I mean, I think they've done a really impressive job yeah. digitally. So back to sort of Slate's thinking about all right, how do we define ourselves in a world where the thing that we did that was very special is now done by lots of other people? I think the thing that that Slate does it's first of all it's it's the voice of our journalism that it's colloquial, that it's personal, that we write very comfortably in a very direct way for readers. But it's it's also that we are very, very conscious of what it means to be useful. I mean, I, I used to say back when I was editor of Slate, which is now a long time ago, that what we did was intellectual service journalism. You know, you know what the news is, and then you come to Slate to find out how to think about it. Not necessarily to get an opinion, because there are a lot of opinions on the inter- internet, but to get get an analytical framework, to hear interesting people talking about it, um, but from a perspective that adds understanding and explanation. You said go to Slate.com. I used to type that URL <laughs> in the browser all the time. It was one of the sites I went to all the time because you delivered me something new periodically. Now, the traditional mode of journalism now... Facebook or something like that where there's a feed of stuff and stuff sort of flows over you. How do you think about sort of standing out among whatever else is in my Facebook feed or Twitter feed? Presumably I wouldn't have gone and curated some of that stuff that I like yes. as well. So if I like Slate, I probably found other things like Slate that I like. So you're still in a world where you're, you're elbowing people who are doing the same stuff, I would imagine. Yeah. In a distributed world, it becomes all that m- much more important to have a distinct voice and a distinct identity. Because when people are consuming content on Facebook, they think, oh, I just read something interesting on Facebook. And if it's like everything else, that's all they'll think about it. But if it has, it's distinctive enough, and I think Slate's content stands up to this test, you say, I read a Slate piece on Facebook. We're lucky because we still have a legacy readership comes to the homepage, comes to the site, that's still a big share of our audience. And compared to a lot of sites, especially newer sites, less of our traffic comes from Facebook. But of course, the growth very heavily comes from Facebook and other social platforms. And we've embraced that. We're on Instant Articles. We're on Apple News. We're, you know, we're very focused on how you have a, a strong, the right kind of Twitter feed, and how we adapt to these different platforms. Stop not having all a platforms. debate about whether we should do it. We're all just doing it. We're all distributing our content. On all yeah, the and I think we never really have that debate so much at Slate because we we think of ourselves as experimenters and inter- innovators, and that spirit is still strong after 20 years. I think the debate comes more around having to make choices among platforms. And at the size we are, we know we can't do Snapchat and Instagram and LinkedIn and Tumblr and every, you know, Pinterest, we can't do all those things well. We've got to pick the ones that matter most to us. And the ones that matter most to us are clearly Facebook, Twitter, and then it's a long way down to everything else. Yeah. 
you said uh, you, I read a Slate.com piece. I read a Slate piece that with, among a certain kind of Twitter user. There's a, a Slate take. Yeah. Maybe we hear less of it now. And right, the notion was this is sort of a, a contra piece. What did you think of that of that notion that there was a, a hashtag devoted to a sort of stereotypical Slate.com piece? Well, we love it. I mean, the, 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 yes, the parody of the Slate take is that it's just a contrarian position on everything. So yeah, why actually, Donald Trump is really good for America, right. you know, why Mexican judges really are a menace, you know. And there is a, a kind of reflexive contrarianism that, that is a caricature and that we def- steer, steer away from. But I think the starting point for so many Slate writers is – is the conventional wisdom really right? It's to, it's to start interrogating what most people think about most things most of the time. And sometimes you go into that investigation and come back and you say, yeah, it is right. You know, um, Frank Four wrote a great piece years ago, in the, new, the former editor of The New Republic who now writes for Slate. And uh, it was a piece about the conventional wisdom. And, of course, his, his contrarian take was the conventional wisdom is usually right. Did you ever <laughs> worry that you would end up, that would lead you into some place where you'd end up saying, you know, black is white and uh, slavery is a good thing. You know, some preposterous idea that had some sort of intellectual currency in, in a room and once you put it in print or online, it looked terribly embarrassing or, and or worse. I'm sure Slate's had some excesses of, of that kind. I can't think what they are right now. But I think, you know, think about the big assumptions that everybody, broadly speaking, made that turned out to be wrong. That Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. That the financial system was secure, yeah. that you know, New York City wasn't subject to catastrophic flooding, that someone with Donald Trump's politics couldn't be a Republican nominee. I mean, you could go on, but uh, you could almost name one year by year of a thing that everyone assumed. Smart people assumed. Smart people assumed. That it turned out not to be true. And I think that leaves you, that certainly leaves me as a journalist saying, what else might we be wrong about? And no, it doesn't mean black is white or you want to defend slavery or, or, or anything that's just stupid, but it does mean you want to interrogate assumptions you make. And it's interesting to do that. I mean, as a journalist, or at least the kind of journalists that are attracted to working at Slate, like asking those kinds of there questions. There was a very provocative Slate.com piece. It wasn't, it wasn't flip. Uh, it was in my Facebook feed this morning. My sister had put it there. It was about the Stanford rape case with the swimmer and saying, yeah. you know, the move we're seeing from people on the left to go after the judge is misguided. I'm not doing it justice by summarizing it here, but I thought, oh, that's, that's the piece. I don't know that I would only see it in Slate, but it seems like a very Slate piece. Yeah, and you know, I think that's again. Put the you ask a question like put the shoe on the other foot. You know, in a case where Slate's readers would instinctively sympathize with the accused or someone who might have been wrongly accused, would that kind of victim statement be prejudicial? Would it be fair? And I think that you, Slate argues against the kind of moral reasoning that starts with the outcome you prefer and then defends the process that got you that outcome. So how were you guys paying to get this stuff online? You guys have tacked back and forth in terms of business models. We said at the beginning that at one point there was a subscription model. I was just reading a, a 10-year anniversary right. piece from Mike Kinsley saying, we're going to stop selling stuff online. That, that model's never going to work. That model goes back in and out of vogue. It's, it's in vogue now to ask people to pay for content. Yeah, well, we started with no business model and, and trying to figure out how to make an interesting magazine online. And that was a good place to start because there wasn't any business model that could work for you in 1996, 97. Then in 1998, we tried you know, one of the very first paywalls. And um, in many ways, it did work. In 1998, we had 20,000 people I was paying $20 a year. You got the umbrella. You could get, I think, the Encarta uh, CD-ROM. 
And, uh, you know, people, we had a really loyal readership at that point. But what that also meant was that if you, our paywall was pretty restrictive. It meant your maximum audience for anything you wrote was 20,000 yep. people. And having just found this huge and growing audience on, on the internet, that was really demoralizing to writers back then. And I think it left us thinking, look, nobody knows really how we're going to support the kind of content we want to do. Let's go for big audience strategies rather than small audience strategies. And basically, Slate has been supported by advertising, but we're keenly focused on thinking how we can supplement that because the health of so many media businesses has always been multiple media streams, and you know, advertising is, is fickle. So it's free, there's ads, but there is sort of now a membership model? We have well. a membership program called Slate Plus, which we launched uh, maybe about a year, well, it's, all, it's two years ago now. And uh, Slate Plus gives you a lot of extra content, a lot of insider perks. We do a lot of events. You, you get first crack of tickets. You get tickets at a discount. We have a Slate audio book club. A lot of it is around our podcast because one of our most loyal audiences is the podcast audience. And they get ad-free podcasts. They get a special feed. They get bonus content. So how many folks are signed up for that? Well, we're, I mean, we haven't been disclosing all the numbers, but uh, we are in the... Let's see, five figures. Does that what does that tell you? It's it's you done ten thousand and one yeah. or more. We we have yeah we're, we're well into we're well into five figures. We would like to be at six figures. At six figures, and do they pay they pay how much? Fifty dollars a year and, or five dollars. And month. do you think the appeal there is there's actual services that I'm getting and that's worth fifty bucks a year, or is it this is like the uh, NPR book bag? I'm I'm sort of signaling my affinity with a certain group and I'm I'm part of a tribe. I think the latter is is the key part of the appeal. You know, we say the the pitch always says support Slate's journalism, but it supports Slate's journalism. And if you love Slate, you get all this other stuff you're really going to like. But we haven't wanted to put up a paywall, and it, you know, without a paywall, it's tougher to make that pitch. You are to some extent appealing to people's goodwill and love for the site. Are you guys making money? Slate has been a profitable business for a few years, but we would like to be a lot more profitable and we would like to be more secure in our profitability. And at one point, right, it seemed like it didn't matter if Slate was profitable because you were owned by Bill Gates. And then at one point, it didn't matter that much because you were still owned by the Washington Post company, which for a long time was a very successful company, mostly because it had cable TV. Now you're part of Graham Holdings. I assume that puts more pressure on you to, to show real business. It's always mattered a lot to me. I mean, I became editor in 2002, and at some point I sort of became responsible for the whole thing, and I was involved in, in selling it to Don Graham and the Washington Post Company. And I think part of the experiment Slate's engaged in is trying to show that the kind of journalism we do can be economically viable. Doesn't mean we want to be a billion-dollar startup. Doesn't mean we want to make a huge amount of money. But we want to show that we can we can pay the rent and cover the cost of what we do. And I think in some ways we have shown that. But I think it's too vulnerable and too dependent on the vagaries of the advertising market. Do you look longingly over at your former colleagues, the Washington Post, who've just got a ton of cash infusion and energy from Jeff Bezos? We were talking about him earlier, and say, "Oh man, it'd be great to have a, a billionaire really actively supporting what we're doing." Well, I think it's wonderful that he's invested in it, you know, and I think morale at the Washington Post in this room has just been transformed because after years of cuts and the prospect of more and more cuts, 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 someone came in and said, I'm going to invest in that. 
That said, I don't think bottomless subsidy is not what we were looking for. I want to make the business work. Right. I don't think Bezos would say I'm giving him a bottomless right. subsidy either. So I'm just, I just give. He you may a not think that. Yes, exactly. He may not think uh, that yet. But it's a it's a tough business, and you know, we, when you look you look around, there's a positive spin on it, which is that the high quality media outlets have all found different kinds of solution. Whether it's Jeff Bezos for the Washington Post, or it's the FT's paywall, or the the Times's uh, paywall model or you know, the various permutations and combinations that people have come up with. But at the same time, nobody is secure right now, and there's a sense that publishers, high-quality publishers, are still losing power relative to Facebook in particular, and it feels like a very vulnerable moment, um, yeah, no one, not no a one's, pessimistic moment. No one's saying we've solved it, but there's a little bit of breathing room. And we started off talking about podcasts. Let's end talking about podcasts. So wh- why did you decide to get into podcasts when you did, which, again, was a long time ago? Yeah, well, we had a partnership uh, with NPR to produce a show called Day to Day, which is no longer on the air. It was done out of L.A. And we had someone working – we hired to work on that show for us called Andy Bowers, uh, who is of all things – well, he'd been an NPR correspondent and had been in Moscow and London for them, really great radio journalist. And he developed our – he was our producer on that show. And we had a really good time doing that. But after a certain amount of time, I think and the NPR-ness of NPR asserted itself. It was a little less open to the kind of experimentation we wanted to do. And Andy Bowers said to me, you know, this is new thing called podcasting that I'm, I'm doing in my garage – and it's really fun, and I think it was Slate would would really benefit from it. So I said, "Well, why not?" And, and that was when that would have been eleven years ago. Yeah, so and r- r- right when it had literally right at created. the beginning. I mean, we didn't have the first podcast, but it was very very early days. And the first show we started was what became the Slate Political Gap Fest with with John Dickerson and David Plotz and Emily Bazelon. That show had its tenth anniversary, I think, over the winter. And so from the beginning, we we loved doing these shows. We had this kind of reaction we were talking about from the audience when it feels like you're talking to a, a very big group of friends who are super engaged in what you're doing. And, you know, at one point people were very excited about podcasts and then they lost interest. Yep. But we didn't lose interest because we just – it was one of the things that was working for us. We, even without making a ton of money on it, we said this is a thing we should be doing because it works. And then the, the kind of world came back to it partly because of Serial. Right, so there's the serial moment, and now everyone's very interested in it, and there's still a big open question about, is this really a business? How big is the business going to be? Um, if it turns out we're all dependent on Apple to distribute our, our audio, then aren't we all screwed? Um, how are you guys sort of thinking about how the business of, of podcasting will grow in the next couple of years? Because the estimates range from no business this year to maybe it's a couple hundred million dollars. Whatever it is, it's tiny this year. Hard to say how fast, but... Radio is a $17 billion business, and the idea that in a few years people are not going to be listening to radio on demand the way they've learned to watch TV right. seems impossible to me. I, I think that that market is going to shift. Podcasting maybe isn't the right name for it. On-demand audio, once that technology is really in everybody's cars, people are going to listen that way, and that the dollars are going to follow. So I think it's going to be a very big business. And one of the, one of the things I've learned for years watching audiences move from analog to digital is that inevitably always happens. Of course, people are going to want to consume things in a, in a way that makes more sense to them. Ad dollars take a long time to catch up and still in many cases don't. So are you prepared to sort of go several years where, where you've got an audience but you're mo- not monetizing it in a significant way? Well, we are monetizing our audience now. I mean, we're, there are plenty of the kind of ads you just read and the CPMs are good. And I think it's partly because it's a good user experience. You know, 
the advertising on video is a terrible user experience. The advertising is like a tax on the video viewers. Watch right. this painful, unpleasant thing, and then we'll let you see the content you want. Audio doesn't feel like that. It feels really integrated. It feels it feels pleasant. It's a good experience for the user. I think it works. Uh, so I think the market will follow. The biggest problem at the moment is the lack of granular data of the kind of advertisers expect. There's no data, expect. and that's one of the reasons a lot of our advertisers are direct response advertisers for the most part, right? Because if you go to MacWeldon.com, put the offer code Recode in, MacWeldon knows that you heard that from me. Um, otherwise, any advertiser has no idea who listened to this, if anyone listened to it. Right, but look at that evidence. You have direct response advertisers, including very big ones like Audible and Squarespace, that, that are advertising on the same shows for years at a time it works. based on the, their meeting their customer acquisition cost target. That says to me, this is working for them. And the fact that brand advertisers say, where's the data? Well, that's not the, 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 exactly the kind of data you're looking for. That will come. We're, we're, gonna, we're, we're working on that. We're working on proxies for it and we're ways to say things about that. But the basic format works. And then there's the Apple question, right? The, or will there be someone else besides Apple distributing it? I mean, to me, the obvious thing is Amazon, which owns Audible, which has been supporting all these things, has a very good idea of what's working. And if they want to could really be a force in, in, in audio distribution. Um, I'm assuming you think that's a possibility, but I'm assuming you're looking for other options as well. There are a lot of ways it could happen. Android is is finally tr- trying to catch up a little bit on podcasting. Once they, they develop a more significant base, they could have an advantage relative to Apple by, by providing more data. So that would put some pressure on Apple to provide some data. You know, Apple, I mean, Apple's been a wonderful friend to podcasting. Basically, the industry exists because of the app, and they made it a non-deletable app in iOS 6, and sort of that's why we're here. And they haven't tried to exploit it commercially at all. So I think they deserve a huge amount of credit. But because it's not a revenue stream for them, yeah. they don't necessarily have an interest right now. No, and in by the way, it's an advertising-based revenue stream, which they seem to be wholly uninterested in. Yeah, and it's just not, as you say, so far, it's not that much money. It's not. It's better as something that is a reason to buy an iPhone. You know, I have an iPhone in part because I love podcasting until at least recently. If you're a podcasting person, you probably want an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. So my excellent producer, Beth, reminded me that we did not ask you about Malcolm Gladwell's new podcast, which I haven't been able to hear yet. When you hear this podcast, you probably can hear. It's a 10-part series called Revisionist History. It's been Malcolm Gladwell's big project for the past six months. New Yorker he, writer Malcolm Gladwell, your old friend Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote about your grandmother. Oh, my mother. Um, oh, your mother, I'm yeah, sorry. All the, yes, in the tipping point. Yeah, the, that, that Malcolm Gladwell. And, uh, you know, I'd been, he's, he's a pal of mine, and I'd been hacking about podcasting for a long time, trying to get him t- interested in doing one. And uh, I think with a little help from Bill Simmons, he really got excited about it. Because and he'd been on Bill's podcast. He'd been on Bill's a show a lot, and Bill told him how much he liked doing podcasting. And when Malcolm decided to do it, he plunged in. He did interviews all around the world. He wrote the scripts for, for these 10 full-length episodes. And it is such an interesting show. It's sort of like a pure expression of what Gladwell's interested in and how's he, how he goes at storytelling. Kind of an audio version of a New Yorker story that he would have written, right? In a lot of ways, yeah. He finds uh, multiple narratives and brings them together around a theme. And they're, some of them are very quirky. I mean, the, the concept is things we got wrong the first time. So he's, he's your friend, yeah. longtime friend, but I'm guessing he doesn't do this for free. Did you have to get a sponsor in before he would agree to do that? I mean, did you have to say, we're going to pay you X and then find a sponsor to do it? Or do you pay him X and then hope to find a sponsor later? He did it on the base, same basis we work with other partners like Sports Illustrated or you know uh, New York Magazine. It's a rev share. So if we sell a lot, he gets a 
big percentage of a lot, and if we don't sell any, he gets a percentage. But he's not nothing. getting paid up front. No, but he was, and that's generally the way we've done. We fronted the costs of of producing a show, which right. for some, something like his show that's highly produced are not insignificant. But no, we want everyone to work on an incentive basis. We have we we are making an investment around podcasts, and we'll finance them. But so far, our model hasn't been to lay out big advance, the equivalent of big advances, to get people to do them. I cannot wait to hear it. I bet that by the time this podcast drops, I will have heard it. So thank you for delivering it to me. For Excellent. Free. Great Jake, talking to you, Peter. I appreciate your time. Thanks. If you enjoyed listening to this, guess what? It's still going to be free for a long time. You can go subscribe on iTunes. You can go find it on Google Play. I think we're on Spotify now. Anywhere you can listen to this, you should be listening to it. Subscribe, that's all we ask. And actually, if you give us a rating, that'd be good too. And if you do like this stuff, there's stuff from Kara Swisher, there's stuff from Warren Good. You know how to find all this stuff because you're smart, you're listening to this podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Mac Weldon, and to Digital Media, our distribution company who makes all this stuff sound great. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. Thanks.